So let's see. Brush my teeth. Check. Took a shower, washed my hair. Check. Got the dog food ready. Check. Let the chickens out. Pretty sure check. I want to be where you are. Check. You know, last week, we were talking about checklist. And James talked about the Pharisees and, and how they were really good at checklists. And they were. And I have to believe that as we move forward, at the end of where James was, that the Pharisees were thinking, I feel pretty good about myself. But we're going to go into past that, but let me remind you of where we ended last week. James read, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I can almost see the Pharisees and the scribes off in their little click corner going, that's right. Yeah. You've got to be as good or better than we are. This Jesus is okay. I like what he's saying. Because they were great models of righteousness in their own minds. And they probably thought that the common people could use more of what they had to offer. Because as James said, they did these outward things very well. But they were empty. Later in Matthew, said to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you. The law is good. Practice that. This is not a bad thing. But then he continues by saying, do not do what they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. And James talked about last week these six antitheses that were beginning today, and, and he referred to Jesus ramping up the law. Now, I'm going to argue that it was a complete loop-de-loop, -loop, because to me a ramp is either a gradual incline or a gradual decline. And Jesus in these, you have heard it said, but I tell you, to me is completely turning the law on its head. He's actually just turning it back to his true intent. C.S. Lewis was asked one time what he thought about the Sermon on the Mount. Did he care for it? And he said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer. I can hardly imagine a more deadly spirited condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Jesus' life fills these jars with meaning. And as we go into these six antitheses, let's remember the verses that were at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished teaching these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So as we enter these six passages, we're being taught that the inside, the heart, a life lived through the lens of Jesus is where the jars are filled. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, 
when we think of heart, we think emotion. Oh, I love her so much. My heart is broken. My heart is so And today, I heart you. We're emotional when we think about our heart. However, in the time on the Sermon on the Mount, heart meant more. The Hebrew word for heart is levar. In Jesus' time, the heart, which was a lev or levar, was the center of human thoughts and emotions and spiritual life. So while we associate heart with emotions, in Hebrew, it also refers to mind and thoughts as well. We can see, because of that, how the Hebrews saw the greatest commandment when we think about heart in those terms. Love the Lord with all your heart means we are to use all of our thoughts, all of our spirituality, as well as our emotions to love the Lord. In the gospel, they added the phrase, and with your minds, is to emphasize the fact, but from Moses' time forward, it would have been understood to encompass that. As Paul says and James referenced, we must take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So, to the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, the heart was a source from which all life flows. And as Jesus is about to explain, the heart is the battlefield where the war is won. Later on in his ministry, Jesus speaks to the scribes and Pharisees about this when he quotes Isaiah saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And I have to tell you, isn't my jar pretty? I mean, don't I look good? When you see my jar, I pretend to be righteous. He goes on to say that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Get the feeling we're going to hear about a few of these things over the next few weeks. Kyle Eidelman, in his book Gods of War, says life doesn't work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom of your heart is fixed. So, here we are. Crowd, Pharisees are gathered together, disciples are there. They're spreading the word as Jesus says it. And I've got to believe some of the people are thinking, I can get on board with this meek shall inherit the earth. Did you hear that? We're finally going to overthrow the Romans. Yes, it's our time. And as I said, maybe even the Pharisees and scribes are feeling not too bad about still being held up as someone that everyone else is supposed to become more righteous than. However, I'd argue within minutes as Jesus goes through these, those same people who are puffing themselves out are trying to find a way to kill him. That's how radical this teaching is. Jesus is saying, hey, not only are you interpreting the law incorrectly, not only have you put fences around the law, not only have you made it empty jars, but I am the fulfillment of the law. I gave the law to Moses to begin with. I know what it means because I wrote it. Now it's almost impossible to realize how shocking that was to that crowd. To the Jew, the law was absolutely holy 
and absolutely divine. The first of the six antitheses is Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, and the Greek word for insult is raka, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said. The people had been told. The laws were orally handed down by the Pharisees and the scribes for hundreds of years. And as James said last week, they had kind of fenced the law or put fences around the law. You know, it's helpful as we start to unravel the scripture to understand that Jesus was using a, a rabbinic idiom in that phrase. The word say, or amar, was used by rabbis to interpret in terms of giving the proper interpretation of the, the scriptures and how to apply its laws. Now, I don't believe that all the Pharisees were out to fence the law or drive it in another direction. Some probably were. But I think when there's a little deviation from the intent of the law, and it's passed down for hundreds of years, you're way off the mark of where the law was. I mean, we've all played that telephone game where you whisper something, and by the time it gets around a circle, it has no resemblance to the first thing that was said. Additionally, during the exile, many of the people in the crowd that were at the Sermon on the Mount had lost the ability to read and converse in Hebrew. The common language was Aramaic, and the trade language was Greek. And while the Old Testament had been translated into Greek, the Septuagint was bulky and expensive, and it was out of reach for the average person. The result was that people relied on religious leaders to read the scriptures and explain them. And since they didn't understand the original text, they had no baseline for judging the explanation and the exposition given to them as what they meant. They relied on leaders to explain it. That's the fencing of the laws. I think it was James, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, said, when you hear him or me or P.D. or Tom, don't rely on what we tell you. Go look at the Word. Go study the Word. Because while I would never do it on purpose, my interpretation may not be what yours is. And we should discuss that. Now, I still think at this point, after they heard that, I don't think they understood the back end of that. But I still think when they heard, you shall not murder, they're probably nodding, going, yeah, that's what we say. You shall not murder. But then comes the but. It seems like with Jesus, there's always a but. But before we get to that part, before we find out what the but is, let's look at the murder part. And clearly, this part is pretty easy. It's taken from the Ten Commandments. 
Exodus 20.13, Deuteronomy 5.17, you shall not murder. Seems easy enough. Probably most of us are on board with that. You shouldn't murder anybody. We probably all have some issues with some of the other nine commandments, but I think murder we're pretty good with, don't do. However, the Hebrew verb ratzak includes the unlawful or immoral killing of a human being and also the death of another human being through careless or negligent behavior. I'm a lawyer, like the scribes were, and we as men have given excuses for some of this. Negligent homicide. Not as bad as murder, it's negligent. Jesus is saying it's the same. And I would argue that there are many of us in here today, if we were to gather together in a small group, that could voice lots of things we think are immoral killings. The Hebrew word for killing is mut, or mut, which means put to death. But ratzak means to murder. And even though we've been taught, we've been, been commanded not to murder, why does that matter? Well, right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1.27, we are told that God created man in his image. In the image of man, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Later in Genesis, after the fall, and after the first murder, where Cain killed Abel, we are told when God speaks to Noah after the flood, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We are created in God's image. And to murder another person is to murder what's closest to God. And Jesus reaffirms this when he says that a murderer will be held liable to judgment. And the judgment, as laid out in Numbers, is death. Again, that seems pretty easy. Don't murder anyone. I think I can do that. But now Jesus goes with the buts. He ramps everything up. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, wait a minute. I have a brother. I love my brother. But I've been angry with him, especially the 10-year-old version. I'm sure even you, Jesus, would be okay with me being mad at the 10-year-old version of my brother. That's not enough for Jesus. He continues by saying, whoever insults, again, the Greek word is raka, his brother, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh boy, am I in trouble now. Have I ever been angry with my brother? Yes. Have I ever called someone names? Yes. Insulted a brother? I'm afraid so. So Jesus is saying we can't just look at the outward, at actions, at actual murder, but we also must look inward to the thoughts of our heart and our mind. Jesus, in ramping this up or kinging like he's never done before, says something that we often don't remember today, at least I don't. It's not enough to not commit murder. The only thing sufficient after this is not even to wish to commit murder. I mean, it may be that we've never actually struck anyone with anger or malice, but how many of us have thought about it? 
I mean, that idiot cut me off. Boy, if I was ever alone with that child molester. Jesus teaches that thoughts are just important as actions. It's not enough not to commit a sin, but to become more righteous than the Pharisees and scribes, we must never wish to commit a sin. Jesus is telling us we won't just be judged by our deeds, the law as it is written, but we'll be judged as well by our desires, even if they never emerge in deeds. By the world's standards, a man's a good man if he never does any forbidden thing. But by Jesus' standards, as laid out here, he must not even desire to do a forbidden thing. And not surprisingly, Jesus is right. For his way is the only way to true safety and security. You know, to some extent, we are all split personalities. Part of us is attracted to good and part of us to evil. You see it on TV shows or cartoons sometimes, a little angel on one shoulder, a devil on the other. And while that was kind of funny, it's true. And as long as we're like that, we'll have this internal struggle going on. In Greek, there are two words for anger. The first is thumos, which means a quick burst of temper. It surges and subsides quickly, and that's a normal occurrence. It's probably actually what happens when I yell at somebody who cuts me off. But there's another kind of anger, and it's called orge, which is a deep-seated animosity that seethes. It's a long-lived anger, a brooding that a person nourishes and nurses and refuses to let die. That orge anger is an anger that we fan continually, taking it from an ember into a raging fire of bitterness and resentment. We devote energy to keeping the anger alive and intense. We keep reminding ourselves of how wrongly we've been treated. And the Bible is clear that this type of orge anger is not to be tolerated. James tells us to be quick to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And Paul tells the Colossians when talking about putting on a new self, to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Plato says it this way, the soul is like a charioteer whose task is to drive two horses. One is gentle, obedient to the reins and the words, the other horse is wild, untamed, and rebellious. One horse is named reason, and the other is passion. Lives are lived with the conflict between the demands of passion and the control of reason. Plato says that reason is the leash which keeps passion in check. The real problem for us, though, if we have unchecked anger, is that the leash that keeps passion in check can snap at any time. The phrase crime of passion ring with anyone. Has anyone seen anything on the news that resembles this? That fill-in-the-blank action was so out of character. I guess he just snapped. He was such a quiet neighbor. I can't believe that he could have done, again, fill-in-the-blank. And if we are not constantly taking our thoughts captive and living through the lens of Christ, then our self-control may even for a moment, 
be caught off guard. If we harbor anger, there cannot be safety. Only by eradicating the desire for the forbidden thing or erasing our anger can we come into the safety of a relationship with God. Paul says in Galatians, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, maybe not in here, but I can see some people if I was talking to about this saying, wait a minute, I get it, Chris. You're saying we're not supposed to murder and we're not supposed to be angry. That's fine. But didn't Jesus get angry? Now, that's in there for our non-churching friends who always seem to find biblical contradictions, you know, just to make our lives harder Monday through Friday. Yes, of course, Jesus got angry. But the difference is, his anger was never wrapped up in what was happening to him. He was angry at things that were affront to God, to the law as intended, but not to him. As opposed to me, when I'm usually angry, it's because something happened to me, real or imagined. But then it's amazing, when Jesus had every right to be angry, when he was wrapped in human skin, after an unjust arrest and an unfair trial, he was mocked, beaten, spit upon, and crucified. So he certainly at that point had a right to be angry. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So what do we know about that orge anger and what it can actually physically do to us? There was an article in Everyday Health entitled Seven Ways Anger is Ruining Your Health. It said that unleashing episodes of anger when you hold it in for a period of time or turn it inward or explode in rage can cause actual havoc on your body. Put you at a greater risk, in fact, twice as likely to have coronary disease. Ups your risk of a stroke, worsens your anxiety, weakens your immune system, it's been linked to depression, it can hurt your lungs and shorten your life. For our health and our future, we must take our anger captive. Jesus said that if we don't, we are liable to judgment. And John reminds us in 1 John, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Not like a murderer, not maybe, not we'll figure out some excuse for, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But there's more. Of course, with Jesus, there's more. Jesus said that whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. I mean, I really don't think that's fair. Some of my insults are kind of clever. <laughs> and I don't know how you drive around Albuquerque and not insult someone. So this is kind of my line in the sand. The word for insult is raka. It means empty as an empty-headed or block-headed and it's a term of abuse. It was, an expressive, it was expressive of indignation or contempt. It meant, I, I don't think you're much. There's some authority that it derives from to spit upon. So now, I can't be angry. I can't insult someone. And if I do, I'm liable to the council. And as I studied this, I wondered what council. And more than one place said it was the Sanhedrin the group of priests and scribes that might have been there 
and who also were there after Jesus was betrayed. And when Stephen was found guilty and then he was stoned. Now, if that's not enough, Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Psalm 14 begins, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, in Hebrew, there were three words for fool, and all of them had to do with moral orientation rather than intellectual ability. So often today, I might call somebody a fool. I'm not saying that has anything to do with their morality. Could be I think I've made a bad decision or that I'm somehow smarter or make better decisions than they have. But in Hebrew, it's speaking of morality. So the fool, as Jesus is speaking of, implies really an utter godlessness. It embodied a temper, not like the empty-headedness of the word raka, but a fixed and settled hatred. And it was the underlying hatred that Jesus was condemning. Now all that hatred will make me liable to the hell of fire, literally the Gehenna of fire. And Gehenna has different meanings. It can be Hades or literally hell. It could also mean among Jews around Jesus' time the place of future punishment. The word Gehenna is Greek for Gehinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. And much goes on in the Old Testament in that valley. And the Jews, upon return from exile, to show their hatred for the idolatry of their fathers, they show that by making it a place where they cast out all refuse of the city, it literally becomes the city dump. It's outside the walls, the city dump. And symbolically, it is said that fires always burn there. It had become, a, in Jesus' time, a symbol for the final state of those in whom all has become vile and refuse. And the crowd would have understood exactly what he was talking about. So we have all that, but then what do we do? I mean, I think we can all admit to anger at some point in time. I think some of us had admitted that something may have happened to us or a loved one that's so hurtful that we're constantly angry. We have called people names or become so godless in our hate that we can't even move forward. It makes it impossible to worship, to form the intimate relationship with God that he wants for us. But despite this, here we are in this building. I mean, we haven't actually murdered anyone, yet we know there's something more. What do we do? What's the more? What is it? And Jesus answers in two words, and I've already given you one of them. Forgive and reconcile. Louis Smead, he's a Christian author, says it this way, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and only then discover that the prisoner was you. Sinful anger must be faced honestly and confessed to God as a sin. All of these six antitheses deal with sin. It's all dealing with confessing that sin. This week's is anger. Next week we'll hear about something else. So if we have the anger that we spoke of or issues with someone, Jesus says, before we even get here, come to worship to the altar, to give our offering, so to speak, we should leave the offering at the altar and go reconcile with that person. Then 
come back and return your gift. Jesus makes this clear after teaching the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, when he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, this is not couched in anything. It is do this. Not do it with a couple people where it's kind of easy to talk to them. Do it with everyone. You know, there are times when you need to forgive someone who doesn't even know they've hurt you. Or haven't acknowledged that they've hurt you. Or frankly, they don't think they need forgiveness. Forgive them for your sake, not for theirs. The Mayo Clinic, in an article about the health benefits of letting go of grudges and bitterness, no, I'm not only going to have an article about the bad things, here's an article about the good things. The article says that even though traumatic events can leave you wounded, with lasted feelings of anger, bitterness, and even vengeance, forgiveness is a key to health. It says that if you don't practice forgiveness, you could be the one who pays most dearly. By embracing forgiveness, you can also embrace peace, hope, gratitude, joy. Four things that we hear a lot about in the Bible. They go on to say that forgiveness is a conscious decision, a decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. Now, health benefits from doing that include healthier relationships, improved mental health, less anxiety and stress, and hostility lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, a healthier immune system, and improved heart health. I think the one important to us out of those is the first one, because relationships is really what Jesus is talking about this whole time. Building and having and being able to have better relationships, and for us as Christians, it's a better relationship with our Lord. We must forgive and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters, and we have to do it quickly. But why? Because not doing so hinders our ability to come into reverent and worshipful relationship with our Lord. Verses 25 and 26 say, Come to terms with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you end up in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is really practical advice Jesus is giving. Get your trouble sorted out and do it quickly. He speaks of two people on the way to court together. And again, being an attorney, this doesn't happen very often. I mean, you have people on the other side of an issue, but generally once you get into the courtroom, you're adversaries. And we as men with our laws, have made that system. But in Jesus' time, it happened fairly regularly because under Greek law, there was a process of arrest called apergoge, which means summary arrest. Basically, it means the plaintiff or the one bringing the charge would actually arrest the defendant. He would catch him by his robe at the throat, so if he struggled, he would strangle. And he'd drag him down to court or to the council. Now, there weren't many of these crimes and you actually had to be caught red-handed for that to happen. But you could be arrested for things like this, for thieving, for stealing clothes, thank you public baths, pickpockets, housebreaking, kidnapping. 
Under Jewish law, a scenario like this is also possible, but in this sense, the, clear, the, the scripture speaks of a debt of some kind. And it's, if it's not resolved, Jesus says that you won't be relieved of the debt until the last penny is paid. Well, if I have a debt to someone, or someone has a debt to me, not necessarily money, I am called to forgive that debt. Jesus, throughout verses 23 to 26, helps us better understand God's intent, character, and will as it's revealed in the law. He wants us to see the law, but not as the Pharisees have given it, but as it was intended. Jesus is saying that we must forgive and we must reconcile. How often have we heard about a family had a dispute and it tore that family apart, not just for that generation, but for generations to come. I wonder if at the beginning one of the parties had had the grace to apologize or admit fault, then perhaps the family and the relationship would not suffer that harm. If we're at odds with someone, have a disagreement, carry the burden of anger or irrational or irresponsible thoughts, we must be humble enough to confess that sin and apologize. Even if we feel we were in the right, we must take the first step towards reconciliation by forgiving. Jesus is also reminding us that we need to put things right and do it quickly, not just to avoid paying a debt or even going to jail. He's reminding us to put things right with each other while life lasts, for someday you know not when. Life on the earth will come to an end, and we will stand before God. One of my questions today, are you ready if it's today? And I don't think I am. Much like things Jesus preaches all the time, it is so deep, and it is so simple, and it is so hard to do. Follow the law, and beyond that, don't be angry. And when you are wronged, forgive. When you do wrong, repent of that sin and apologize to the one you hurt and do so quickly before your time is over. And the reason is so that you can have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God. You know, it's kind of strange. From the outside, these jars all look the same. Even the one that has water in it, if you're a ways away, looks like the others. And don't we go through life looking at people that way? Oh, they're this way. Oh, they're that way. Because of the jar. But God's not looking at our jars from a distance. He knows every thought, every hair on our head. He's looking at our jars up close today. Are we living life through the lens of Christ so that our relationships on earth are without seething anger, so that we might have true relationship we crave and God craves? And I challenge you this week, to look at views that are different than yours on TV. Are you more in the seething anger? Are you more in the forgiving side? Because God wants you with him. He wants you there intimately. The English clergyman George Herbert said, he who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would ever reach heaven for everyone.
as the need to be forgiven. Father God, I thank you for your son who showed us the model not only of grace by dying on the cross, but the way to live every day of our lives and the way he lived his life. I would ask, Lord, if we have those among us who are angry, who are hurt, that they might be able to lay that at your feet so that they might come and know you better. Know your love and know your grace. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
I'm an elder here. My wife Barbara and I have worked out here with preschool kids. And I also do some maintenance work there at the church. And I can always use whatever help I can get. I could really use some help with this. Now, here are listening to some announcements. The fixing of the building will begin in the later part of this week. Right, some of the stuff that we need out there is. Don't touch it. Thank goodness we're finally getting some stuff fixed. <laughs>
that God would be pouring out of us in this holy life would be ever evident to those around us. God, may we praise you in everything, that everything that we do outside of these walls be for you and for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Gotta keep everything clean. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. Thank you. Appreciate you. Oh, you as well. In a couple weeks, it'll be interesting. Well, I've just been thinking about how to start that one, and we'll see. does <laughs> which is a good thing Tom and I talking is just the portrait of grace that you represent in that situation yeah.